The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Well, Philippians chapter 1, last week we spent virtually all of our time on verse 21, for me to live is Christ. And today we're going to look at to die is gain. And I want us to look uh, at Philippians 1, beginning at verse 21 through 26. For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Now, before I get into the meat of the message, there's, there's something here that just rocked me this week as I really looked at it. Paul said, for me to live is Christ. Then in verse 26, when he talks about him staying, he says, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. When you think about the unbelievable privilege that you and I have to cause other people to have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus, that is the essence of Christianity. And it is the very essence of the Apostle Paul's ministry. For him to live as Christ, what does that look like? Well, giving cause for others to glory in Christ Jesus. And as we go into this message, I want you to really be very honest with yourselves this morning. And really ask yourself, does my life give ample cause to others to glory in Christ Jesus? Now, the second half of verse 21 moves from the subject of life in Christ to death in Christ and teaches that there are amazing benefits uh, in death. Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But two verses later, he adds, I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. When you listen to those words, it should just encourage every one of us to realize what's coming. I mean, there is nothing in this life that, you, that should bring us down. I mean, there are things that affect us. I mean, I'm a realist. I understand that. But when you begin to consider the amazing things that weight us, it should encourage us and give us just incredible peace to endure. How vividly those words express the triumph that's for every one of us who name the name of Christ. But before those talk about those benefits, it's very important for us to talk about the death of unbelievers. Because unfortunately, it's necessary to say that although death holds tremendous benefits for Christians, it certainly doesn't hold any benefits for unbelievers. A Christian may experience much of hell on this earth. Life might be very difficult and there could be stresses and frustrations, but we know what's coming. To the unsaved person, the only heaven they know is what they make of it here on earth. And after that, the future is condemnation and suffering. 
Subconsciously, the non-Christian knows this. Thus, death looms larger as a dreadful enemy. Philosophers have pictured death in abstract language. Poets have romanticized it, all in an attempt to minimize the reality that lies ahead. But the fear of death lies deep in the mind of the unbeliever. Francis Bacon once said, Men fear death as a child fears the dark. People know that in death a person must meet his maker, and even those who claim to be atheists know that something is up, and they're going to have to face it. Samuel Johnson, a writer, once told of the horror at the death of a friend. He said, quote, At the sight of his last conflict, I felt a sensation never known to me before, a confusion of passions, an awful stillness of sorrow, a gloomy terror without name. End of quote. That's a horrifying way to think of death. How grateful Christians can be that Christ came to free us from that terror. In fact, the scripture says of Jesus in Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus took our place and removed the fear. So, the best is to come. Some people have imagined that if a person suffers enough in this life, death comes as a necessary relief from suffering. And some have speculated that it's only in this sense that death can be gained for Christians. Christians have often been tortured for their faith. They've struggled. They've endured terrible calamities. And from this perspective, death sometimes has been called the great blessing. But this distorts the true biblical picture of death. Because the reality is, death for the Christian is never pictured in the Bible as gain over the worst in this life. Instead, it is portrayed as an improvement on the best. This is the sense that Paul intends his words to the Philippians. Consider how Paul suffered. Shipwrecked. Every week we mention about this. Shipwrecked, bitten by snakes, whipped within inches of his life, put in prison, chained. We might imagine Paul longed for death to escape this awful life. Yet, this is just the opposite of what Paul said. Paul's life was full. He had been enriched by fellowship with Christ. And he writes in verse 21, For me to live is Christ. He was confident that Christ would be magnified in the way he led his life. He speaks of his earnest expectation and hope by saying in Philippians 1.20, But that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Death wasn't a release. It was just an upgrade. It was already, he was already living in Christ. His eternity had already started. And the life he lived now was not affected by the difficult things of this life. He rejoiced in them. He rejoiced that his life was hid in Christ. He was filled with the, the delight that the work in Philippi had prospered. He had even seen the scriptures penetrate Rome. Consequently, the statement that surrounds his circumstances are, are optimistic and encouraging. 
And it is against this background that he terms his death better by far. One writer put it like this, quote, To some people, life and death look to us like two evils of which we do not know which is less. As for Paul, they look to him like two immense blessings of which he knows not which is the better. On either side of the wall or the veil, Jesus Christ is all things to him. Only the conditions of the other side are such that he longed for the championship of the master will be more perfectly realized there. End of quote. So what are the benefits of death for the Christian? Well, there are at least three. Freedom from the evil of this world, conformity to the image of Christ, and fellowship with Jesus Christ forever. So let's look at these three things first of all. First, freedom from evil. The first great benefit of death for the Christian is that death brings permanent freedom from evil. We look at what's going on in this world and sometimes we don't know what's coming next. From the confusions in the political realm to the terrorists around the world and everything, we all know the world seems to be getting worse every day. We will be free from all of that. The unsaved person may not desire this preferring to wallow in sin, but to the Christian who has tasted the light of God's righteousness, it only grows and grows. And the more we surrender to him, the more it grows in our own lives. There's an interesting image in these verses that conveys this thought. In verse 23, Paul says that his desire is to depart and to be with Jesus. Now, the Greek word translated depart is a word from which we get our word analysis. It had various uses in ancient times. Sometimes it referred to the freeing of slaves, sometimes solving of problems, but most often about breaking of camp by the Roman legions. But in every instance, it referred to the idea of leaving something permanently behind. Now, in the military operations of the Roman soldiers, when they were out on, on campaigns, in the evening they would come to set up their camps, and they would pace out a big enough square to accompany all the soldiers, and each soldier had his assigned area. And then they would actually dig moats and build up ramparts, sometimes 10 feet tall, around the camp. Then and only then would they relax for the night and take their rest. It's interesting that in the morning when they struck their camp and the soldiers moved on, they left behind them with all its fortifications a camp discarded like a moth's cocoon, sort of a mute testimony that they had been there. Paul suggests in a similar way that Christians break camp to be with Jesus. They leave everything unuseful behind, all of sin, all of pain, all of the cares and the anguish of this world. In death, there is great freedom. To convey such a peaceful freedom, the Bible also speaks of death as sleep. Uh, Stephen said that he, uh, it was said of Stephen that he had fallen asleep when he gave up his earthly body, being stoned in Acts chapter 7, verse 60. Christ spoke of Lazarus as having fallen asleep in John 11, 11. Paul wrote many times of sleep of believers. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15, he wrote, For this we desire to, or for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
1 Corinthians 15, 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. Unfortunately, some people have taken the references to sleep literally and have invented a strange idea of soul sleep, teaching that believer sleeps until he is resurrected at Christ's return. However, this is not what Jesus was teaching. Jesus taught that the references to sleep were figurative, and there are verses that teach our immediately transition into the presence of God upon our death. Paul did not say, for me to live is Christ and to die is soul sleep. 2 Corinthians 5, 6-8 says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Notice he didn't say we would rather be away from the body and sleeping. The image is not used to teach that. It is used to teach that, that in death, like a lesser degree of sleep, the individual is free from the cares and the trouble of this world. You can have a very difficult situation you're dealing with, heavy on your heart, and being very agitated about it. But when you're sleeping, you're free from it. And this is the image and why it's called sleep in the Bible and what Jesus was trying to convey. The next thing we see then is that we will be like Jesus. John writes in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. It's not enough to say that death brings freedom from evil. I mean, it's certainly true, but that's in a negative sense. I mean, annihilation would do the same thing. But death brings tremendous benefits. The Bible teaches that death brings a final perfection of the sanctification of the believer that has begun on earth. Think of that. A final perfection, imperfection, will give way to perfection. Now, how are you and I like Jesus? Well, we shall be like him in righteousness. 2 Timothy 4.8 says, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. The thought is breathtaking. Crowned? With righteousness? We do not know that righteousness now. We have only had a taste of it. But the day is coming when we shall be what we were intended to be. The things that are not now nor could be then shall be our own. The original intent for our creation will finally come to pass eternal fellowship with Almighty God. That's what's awaiting us. That's what's ahead of us. That's the perfection that Christ wanted to put in place. We shall also be like Him in knowledge. Now we see things imperfectly. We know in part, and our knowledge is always mixed with error. But in that day, we shall know God as He knows us. Now, if you've ever taken a negative and held it up to the light, you can see the outlines of what the picture is and maybe even a faint hint of color. 
But when the Lord comes, it'll be as if the bright bulb of the projector is magnified it up on the wall and every single detail and every brilliance of color is there to be seen clear as a bell. Paul didn't know anything of negatives and projectors, but he knew the next best thing, and that was a mirror. And he said in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall be known fully, even as I have been fully known. When you consider that we will finally know Jesus, just like he knows us now. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the utter amazement that will be for you and I? I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 15, that great resurrection chapter. And verses 54 through 58 says, When perishable puts on imperishable, and mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the, the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers... Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He says, look, you've got nothing to fear about death. Nothing. Death has no victory for you. There's no sting to death for you. Therefore, on that very basis, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. In other words... Get busy for Christ. You're going to be with Him for eternity. It's an amazing truth. We shall also be like Him in love. There's so much of self in everything we do, isn't there? But Christ's love is selfless and self-sacrificing. It was a love that reached to us when we were sinners and saved us for this life and eternity. It was a love so powerful that not only did it save us for eternity, but for right now, he empowers us with his Holy Spirit to be used of him. Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. But while he's here, the depth of his heart is to cause others to glory in Christ Jesus. I don't have to worry about death, no matter how it comes. Because to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And he taught us how to love in that same way, through his example and through his apostles. How wonderful that Christ's love stooped low enough to reach us and raise us high enough to be with him for eternity. Also, we shall be with him. The greatest benefit for the believer is that we shall be with Jesus. Now, we know him, and he's with us in this life. We may trust in the fact that we will be particularly close to him, but the one thing that I think is very special for you and I is we will be very close to him in death. 
Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Now, this is not only speaking of death, but it's speaking of any trouble we find ourselves in. He is with us all the time. But the verse to me that just lit me up this week is found in Psalm 116, verse 15. Precious is the sight of the, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Think about that for a minute. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Let, let, me, uh, let me try to put this in perspective for you in a very human, very inadequate illustration. But let me just try to give you a hint of what this verse is saying. When you give a gift to someone you love, okay, and, and this is just not any gift. could be a Christmas gift, might be a birthday gift, whatever. could be to your spouse, your children, to somebody. But man, you know they really want this. I mean, you've known they've wanted it for a long time, and you've found it, and you've purchased it, and you're going to give it to them, and the anticipation is just killing you. You, the anticipation is overwhelming, and you just can't wait to give it to them. You know, my, my wife has done Christmas shopping two months before Christmas. I can't get my head around that because I can't stand waiting two months. I'm kind of a little kid when it comes to that kind of thing. If it was me, I'd do all my shopping Christmas Eve, so I'd only have to wait one night. But just imagine, okay, you've purchased this gift and in your mind, you can see their mouth dropping open when they open it. You can see their eyeballs swelling. And the joy and your feeling and the passion that's overwhelming you, ah, you just can't wait. Now, I know Jesus doesn't anticipate because he knows all things. But I want you to think for a moment. That child of God, closing their eyes in death, and then suddenly opening them in glory. And Jesus going, think of it. I told you. And our eyes are swelled and our mouth is popping open. I bought this for you 2,000 years ago on the cross. I bought this for you. Here it is. Forever. Can you imagine that? That's the passion. And when he says precious in the sight of the death of the saints, it's overwhelming. I believe Jesus' excitement is catastrophic, universal, cosmic. Because he loved you so much. For you, he died. For you, he went to the cross. For you, he can't wait till you reach it. For you, it's coming. Death, there's no sting. Death has no victory. It's glory for the child of God. And that's the incredible passion that he lays down for us. Death is always separation, even for Christians. But for the unbeliever, death is the eternal separation of the soul and the spirit from God. For the Christian, death is a separation 
of the soul and the spirit from the body. But there is a sense that there is never any separation. And that's from Jesus. He carries you through. Even for Paul, the dilemma he stood in wasn't a dilemma between Christ and no Christ. It wasn't a dilemma between Christ and Christ. Christ much and Christ more. The dilemma was Christ by faith or Christ by sight. That's where his dilemma was. You and I can always look forward to that union. But for now, here is the great blessing. We can live for others as Paul did. We can allow Christ to live through us, to ignite the passion for others to come to Christ. Death holds benefits, freedom from evil, likeness to Christ, and unity with him forever. But this was never intended to make Christians turn away from their responsibilities here and now. In fact, it ignited them. Don't you want to live for Christ? Don't you want your life to count for Christ? Knowing that all that lays before you, don't you want him to just take every bit of your life and use it? To use you up? These practical considerations always followed the thoughts in Scripture. John argues in 1 John 3, 3, And everyone who thus hopes in himself purifies himself as he is pure. When you and I realize this incredible joy that's coming and realize that God can use us to his glory, it's purifying to us. Because we want to take everything in this world and just throw it away. He must increase, and I must decrease. The great chapter on the, and the resurrection that we looked at in 1 Corinthians 15, 58 ends with, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Since you knew, know where you're going, Give him your all. It is the same thing in our text in Philippians. Because no sooner has Paul said that death is gain for him, than he looks back to those that are in his charge. And in a few brief words, he acknowledges that if God's wisdom is for him to stay here, then verse 25 through 27, he says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy and faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. It must be this way for you and I. We must build up one another in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord so that in me you will have the cause to glory in Christ Jesus. And if you can just imagine what that looks like in a church where everyone is living for each other. I want to bring you cause to glory in Christ Jesus. You want to bring that to everyone around you. And this is why Paul could say, for me to live, is Christ. There's nothing else worth it. All of me now, because he has all of me forever. 
Give him everything and watch what he will do. Let's pray. Father, you are so amazing. Your grace is overwhelming. And just looking at this frightening topic of death and realize there's no fright there at all. There's nothing but wonderful joy and privilege. There's nothing in this world that can threaten us apart from you. There's nothing that can take us away from your will but us. No one can force me out of it. No one can threaten me out of it. I only allow myself to walk away from you. I pray, Lord, that you would work mightily in our hearts to once and for all give it up to you. To decrease in our lives so we can watch you increase and blow our lives up into a radiant, shouting, bright light that causes others to glory in Christ Jesus. And all God's people said, 